Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we begin our last week of our messages in the series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, with a message entitled, Marks of the New Creation. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis 33, verses 1 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Years ago, a very popular bumper sticker on Christian cars read, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. How many of you remember those? Well, I do, and I hated those things, probably because all the people who had them ended up cutting me off in traffic, and I felt that they were saying, oh, well, I'm not perfect, but God will never hold me responsible for running you off the road. And then they smiled sweetly and went on their way. You know, somehow I wasn't very impressed by that kind of forgiveness. But seriously, let me tell you why I really never liked that bumper sticker. You know, I agree, Christians aren't perfect. I know that all too well in my own life. And I agree that we are forgiven. That's a truth that fills me with amazement and wonder. It's been the theme of my life. It's called grace. But I didn't like that one word. It was the word just. You see, if Christians are just forgiven, well, and that's all, it would mean that we can rule out any substantial transformation in the life of an individual. And I must say, what attracts the world to us is not that we're forgiven, but it's that we're changed. It was William Barclay who once said, a saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. Conversion always involves transformation and life-altering change. But as many of us know, some Christians seem less transformed than others. Now, if you're one of those Christians who are less than transformed in your driving habits, may I suggest something? Don't get one of those bumper stickers. Well, in his essay entitled God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis discusses this very phenomenon. He says, take the case of the sour old maid who is a Christian but cantankerous. On the other hand, take some pleasant and popular fellow but who's never been to church. Who knows how much more cantankerous the old maid might be if she were not a Christian, and how much more likable that nice fellow might be if he were a Christian. You can't judge Christianity simply by comparing the product in these two people. You'd need to know what kind of raw material Christ was working with in both cases. Now, I say that for two reasons. First, for the sake of all of you who are grouchy Christians, you've got an excuse. Just say, you know, you think I'm bad now. Just imagine how bad I'd be if I weren't a Christian. And you can get a bumper sticker that says exactly that. But I also say these things because the text we're studying, up until now in our series on Jacob entitled Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, well, my job's been simple. I could describe this man, Jacob, as grasping and deceitful, a man whom God has chosen as a vessel of mercy. So up till now, in our study of Genesis 25 to 36, the entire sermon series was about our unworthiness and of God's kindness, that's grace. But now a page turns. Jacob has met with God and the life of God has begun inside of him. And we can view him now from the vantage point of a man who is being transformed by grace. And what we have is a delightful picture. And today I'm going to point out six areas in his life that are transformed. But Jacob is anything but perfect. As Lewis put it, we can now see what kind of raw material Christ was working with. And by the way, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. 
The Bible never portrays a rose-colored picture of a saint. The picture it provides is real and authentic, filled with moments of great triumphs and also moments of great failure. They are saints, but they're flawed as well. And that's how we will see Jacob. And by the way, isn't that how it is with you and me? Well, sure it is. So let's begin to read our text. I'm reading Genesis 33, verses 1 to 3. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. If you haven't been following this series, here's a bit of background. Jacob has cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright and out of his blessing. Esau was so angry that some 20 years earlier had committed himself to murdering Jacob. And now here we are. The two brothers are about to meet again. The news comes to Jacob. Esau is coming with 400 men armed for war. Jacob's first plan was to divide his family, his servants, and his flocks of sheep into two camps. If Esau attacks one camp, well, the other will flee. This plan would give at least half of them a chance to get away. But everything has now changed. Jacob has encountered God, and he has acknowledged God's grace, and he sought God's forgiveness, and he has spent a night wrestling with God. And in the morning, a changed and transformed man will, will handle the crisis of the moment in an entirely different manner. Jacob looks up into the horizon, and he sees Esau's men bearing down on him. And, and instead of dividing into two camps, he does something which up till now, we would have thought impossible for Jacob. The idea of two camps is abandoned, and instead, Jacob lines his family behind him, and he walks ahead. His reasoning is simple. If Esau is coming to kill him, he might be satisfied in simply killing him, and then he may leave his family alive. I think this is one of the first marks of the new creation. It was the actress Lucille Ball who once said, I have an everyday religion that works for me. Love yourself first and everything else falls into line. Now, I would say, yeah, it does, Lucille, it does fall into line. I, I'm just not sure anyone else really likes the line except you. And in Jacob's case, that religion would surely have put him in the back of the line. Instead, Jacob reverses the order. He loved himself last and everything then also fell into line, a very different line, with him at the front facing Esau. I think that's a Christian virtue. Our Savior went to the cross for us. He came not to be served, but to serve. So likewise, we as his followers would, would gladly sacrifice ourselves so that others might live. Romans 5, 7 to 8 puts the matter quite well. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, in that sense, Jacob's action was not really like Christ at all. Jacob was only protecting those whom he loved and who loved him. So it does not reach the ideal of perfect love yet. But neither is it like Lucille Ball either. He is changed even while he's not perfect. I think that's the first mark of the new life. Every believer in Christ is freed from the enslavement of loving ourselves first. We simply reject that ideal. 
Christianity does not make selfishness a virtue, rather selflessness. What always amazes me is how many believers in Christ make significant sacrifices for the sake of others. See, I've seen believers giving sacrificially of their resources, spending time in service when they could go home and go to bed. I've seen believers helping others when there's no one to thank them. And somehow, Jacob understands. He will sacrifice his life for his family. And and in that sense, listen, married men, Jacob becomes a role model of what the life of God means for you who are a Christian man. Paul calls upon husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. What a calling that is. Sacrifice your life for your wife as, as Christ sacrificed his life for you. That's not to say that Jacob's perfect. If you look at verse 2, you'll see that his family is arranged in such a way that he puts Rachel, his favorite wife, and Joseph, his favorite son, at the back. And as we continue to read through Genesis, we're going to see that that kind of favoritism will bring great harm to his family down the road. No, no, he's not perfect. He's still a sinner. But even though he sins, he's not just forgiven. He's different now. He has become sacrificial in his lifestyle, preferring others to his own needs. Now, here's a second trait that we can also observe. It's it's called humility. In verse 3, we're told that he goes forward bowing seven times until he actually reaches his brother. There are some ancient Egyptian texts from El Amarna in the 14th century BC which show slaves bowing seven times to Pharaoh. And the idea of bowing seven times in that culture would seem to be the ultimate and complete act of servanthood. The text mentions this because 20 years earlier, when Isaac stole Esau's blessing, here's a part of what Isaac got, and it's recorded in Genesis 27, verse 29. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. But now, instead of struggling to get superior status over Esau, as Jacob did in the past, Jacob now bows an ultimate act of servanthood. His pride is stripped away, and there is humility in its place. You know, sometimes humility gets forced on us. Famous figure, a politician is convicted of a crime. A sports figure is caught using illegal drugs. A pastor is convicted of adultery. And then all of a sudden, the person gets humble. Given that Jacob is facing the heavily armed Esau, it's tempting to see him that way. Ah, but look closer. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology, all while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. You know, messages like this help us feel like we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment means so much. So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts. And Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.
Jacob's transformed nature is seen as we examine his encounter with Esau. Remember, he comes bowing seven times before his brother. So let's then read verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Please understand what's happening here. This is not a picture of a long-standing feud. This is a picture of brothers who fall into each other's arms. In an instant, Jacob knows there is no animosity. Somehow God has allowed Esau to forgive Jacob. He holds no grudges. Esau has not come to harm him. The old anger is gone. Jacob had come bowing, sure enough, but Esau would have none of it. But that's still not the story. So let's keep reading verses 5 to 9. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And here we see the character of Jacob. In verse 9, Esau calls Jacob, My brother. But in verse 5, Jacob calls himself, Your servant. And in verses 8, 12, and 14, he calls him, My Lord. What's Jacob saying? Simply this. I'm responsible for the breach in our relationship, and my place is to be humble in your presence. I think that's a mark of the new creation. New creation people are sacrificial. They're humble. That's also a picture of Jesus who bowed before his own disciples, stripped himself to his waist, and took on a wash basin and washed his disciples' feet. Now, there's a third mark of Jacob's transformed character. Notice verse 5 again. Esau asked Jacob, whose large family is this? And what of all this obvious wealth? And Jacob could have said, you know, I made it big, man. I hit the jackpot. But instead, we notice that he's prepared to give God the credit. He said, this is what God has graciously given me. It was his grace. I deserve none of that. And that's transformed character. Now, there's a fourth mark of his internal change. We now see in Jacob that there's a high priority in his life on reconciliation and peace. You know, back when Jacob was still afraid that Esau would harm him, you'll remember that he had sent a large gift to try to pacify him. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. The gift was so large, it would have been large enough for anyone to start a farming operation on the spot and be successful. This was the equivalent of a huge sum of money. The gift was so large that it would have set Jacob back financially. And now we find that Esau is not angry, and what's more, he says he doesn't even want the gift. Jacob can keep all of it. Let me try to put that in context. Let's say that you had wronged someone in a business deal and you thought that person was going to sue you, and you thought that if this matter goes to court, I'm going to lose. So you decide to make your enemy an offer. You'll give that person half of your entire assets, if only he won't take you to court. The person turns around and says, I'm not angry with you anymore. I won't take you to court. Keep your money. I'll guarantee you that 99% of the population would say, great, thank you so much. I'll keep the money. 
Jacob belongs to the 1%. I'm reading Genesis 33, 10 and 11. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Why does Jacob do that? It's as if he said, it doesn't matter if you've forgiven me. I still want to do what's right. I stole from you. And even though you're prepared to let me go on this matter, I will not let this go until I have reconciled this wrong. Why does Jacob do that? He says that seeing Esau is like seeing the face of God. Remember that in the last chapter, he was, he was wrestling with God. And now he says he sees God in the face of his brother. Please remember that in the previous chapter, Jacob really did see the face of God, and he found that God had accepted him. And now he says, seeing that, that Esau has forgiven him, it's like seeing God all over again. I think John says that well in 1 John 4, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Reconciliation, if it's in our hands to do it, well, that's the issue. See, I'm sure that even though Christians aren't perfect and that we are forgiven, one of the things that does mark our lives is our love for one another. Sometimes reconciliation is costly. Sometimes it demands humility. Sometimes it means we even confess our indebtedness to someone. But a truly forgiven person simply pays up the debts they owe, whether they're financial or something else. And this brings me to the fifth change that I see in Jacob. Suddenly we see that he prizes wisdom. That's what we find in verses 12 to 17. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Let's look at the background. It now becomes quite clear why Esau came to Jacob with 400 armed men. It turns out that Esau had intended that they would be a protection for Jacob as he came to a land that was volatile and had a potential for robbers and bandits and freestanding militias. Esau had come to protect his brother. And now that that's cleared up, Esau says, you're safe. I'll lead you home and the two of us can live beside each other in the country that I've conquered, in the land of Seir. We will live as we always should have, in harmony as brothers. But Jacob can't go with them because he's never lost a sense of God's destiny in his life. God had promised Canaan to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob. This is the land of promise, and it is this land where he must go. I call that wisdom. It's a part of the new creation. All believers have a sense of a sacred land, a, a calling, a place where they belong. Ultimately, that land is heaven, and we finally understand that nothing but nothing can keep us from that.
Along the way, there will be those who, even out of good intention, would keep us from going there. So here's Jacob, the new man. He's sacrificial. He's humble. He's prepared to give God the credit. He believes in reconciliation and peace. We see the development of wisdom. And finally, sixth, we see that he has a priority for worship. In verses 18 to 20, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So why does Jacob go to Shechem? The answer is actually quite simple. Many years ago, his grandfather Abraham, when he came to the promised land, had come to that very place. Jacob was going to the very place where the adventure began, to stake his claim in God. There he builds an altar. He calls it El Elohe Israel, God the God of Israel. He wants to, no, no, he needs to worship. He wants to express that his soul has found delight in God. And so that's the new Jacob. And what he has become represents what we become when Christ is found in us. Remember the bumper sticker that I said is really inappropriate? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I said that was wrong. If I were to redo that bumper sticker, I think it would read something like this. Forgiven Christians aren't perfect, but we long to be. And the only place where perfection is found is to sit or to stand or to kneel in the presence of our God and to find delight in Him. Ah, the transformed life. That's where Christ's Spirit dwells. John, it would seem like uh, people are really on their uh, very unique schedule in respect to their journey of faith, as was Jacob. I guess this should be expected of all of us. Yeah, I mean, we know that, you know, Galatians tells us, Galatians 5, about the fruit of the Spirit, and, and we are expecting that the Holy Spirit would reproduce all of that in all of us. But we also know that, you know, depending on who we were when we came to Christ, we are exactly, as you say, Ben, on this different schedule. And, uh, but we recognize that Christ, by His Spirit, is moving us forward, and, and that's really the good news. We expect a change whenever we come to Christ. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada, and I want to share with you an important message. In the past couple of weeks, a group of individuals have come together in a unique way to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Together, they've raised pledges of $125,000 toward a ministry match campaign. That simply means for every dollar our supporters and listeners donate over the next few weeks, a matching dollar will be given by this group up to $125,000. We're so grateful for such generosity those who have made this match pledge, and to those who will respond so we might maximize its impact through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Could I ask you to take the opportunity today so that the entire pledge of $125,000 might be completely realized, totaling $250,000. Your gift of $25,50,100 or more will make this possible. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.